Well, how do you go about responding to a gift? Especially if uh, the gift that you've been given by someone is a bit of a dud. Uh, You were anticipating maybe something altogether different and uh, what they give you is uh, pretty disappointing but you're looking for some sort of angle uh, in how you're going to respond which won't give the game away totally, whether it be socks or uh, the best of Barry Manilow. How did you know? Or whatever it might be. I I have a a relative who is uh, one extreme of responding to gifts. She is the master of the returns policy. And uh, if she gets a gift that she doesn't like, uh, she thinks it's a bit of a dud, she'll go, oh, that's interesting. Have you got the receipt? <laughs> Not what you want to hear after uh, painstakingly striding around shops looking for the perfect gift. Uh, at the opposite end of the spectrum, I, I've got to be honest, most of the time I, uh, I'm not as honest as I should be uh, in receiving dud gifts. Uh, my mother uh, went through about a decade of buying me purple clothes Every birthday and every Christmas. I call it her purple phase. Uh, unfortunately, I, I encouraged her by saying, oh, fantastic, every time. I, I, I think she still thinks purple is my favourite colour, so watch out this Christmas. How about you? How do you respond uh, to a gift? What about if it's not a dud gift, it's, it's an amazing gift, better than you could have possibly imagined, sort of gift that takes your breath away. How do you respond then? Well, in 1 Samuel 2, 11 onwards, we we see a response to just such a gift, an amazing gift. Last week, as we began this series in 1 Samuel, we zoomed in on one household, Hannah's household, and now in the second half of 1 Samuel 2, we zoom in on another house, Eli's house, a household that's been given and an amazing gift by God, and we'll see their response So if you haven't got it open yet, it's on page 272, 1 Samuel 2, page 272. First let's have a look at the gift that God has given this house. You see it in verses 27 and 28. In uh, verse 27 we're told that a visitor comes to Eli. Eli is the priest in God's tent, his temple. Now we're not given much detail about this man other than he is a man of God which is the Bible's jargon to to mean that he is a prophet, one who brings God's word to his people. Now this is really clear from the moment uh, this man opens his mouth. The words that follow are not just some guy's thoughts on the matter. This is the Lord's say on the matter. The Lord who Hannah showed us last week is the God who knows, the God that there is none other like. And so when he speaks to his people, they need to listen. And the first thing the Lord says through this man of God are words of testimony about this incomparable gift, this grace that God has bestowed on Eli's house. Last week we saw that God's power is like none other. Now we see that God is also incomparably kind. The man of God comes to Eli, the chief priest, And he speaks of this gift that the Lord has given him. A gift that has come about by the sheer grace of God and it's summed up in three words in verse 27 and 28. I revealed, I chose and I gave. That's what God has done for Eli. Firstly in verse 27 he says, I have revealed myself to you. The privileged position that Eli and his house enjoy, priests for God's people, the people who represent God's people before their God. 
That job had come to them primarily because God had revealed himself to Eli's father's house many years back in Egypt while they were still slaves in Egypt. The reference here is to Aaron, the very first priest of God's people in the days of Moses. Aaron and his sons were promised that they they and their descendants would be priests over God's people forever. Eli hearing of this gift years later is a direct descendant of Aaron's fourth son and through a chain of events it has flown all the way down the family tree all the way to Eli and his sons. It is an amazing role that they have found themselves in. God's man comes to Eli to remind him of this kindness that God has brought about by revealing himself And what we see here is that when God reveals himself as he did to Aaron and to Moses when they were in the land of Egypt, he doesn't just reveal information about himself, he reveals his will, his purpose, his promises. God's revelation is a revelation of his plans. That's what he's revealing to Eli. Secondly, in the first half of verse 28 he says, not only have I revealed myself to you, I have chosen you. The promise to Aaron's family was the very means by which God delivered on an even bigger promise. Not only to rescue his people out of Egypt but to make them a holy nation, to set them apart. It was through Aaron and his descendants in their roles as the priests of God's people that they enabled this to be a reality. You see, God had chosen Israel to be his people but within this people were an even more privileged group. Aaron and his sons They had the privilege of being chosen out of all the tribes of Israel for this task. You know, nowhere in the Bible do you see God's kindness writ as large as this whole concept of his choice. You see, when God chooses, it's not like a a school kid choosing uh, teammates in a PE class. You look for the the fastest, the most athletic, uh, or, or, or for a quiz, you know, the brightest, the smartest. When God chooses... There is nothing in and of the person chosen that merits that kindness. In fact, the opposite. God's choice is an act of grace, totally undeserved. Eli is being reminded of this. Not only was he chosen to be part of God's people, a massive gift in itself, but within that, he and his sons alone, out of all of God's people, are, as we see in verse 28, able to come close to God, walk right up to his altar, right up to the throne of God. They're able to offer sacrifices that God is pleased with. They are set apart, a royal priesthood. And the third part of the gift, second half of verse 28, God says to Eli, I have given you everything you need. The responsibility for which Aaron and his descendants had been chosen for was an enormous one. But God says here, I gave you everything you needed. For that job. As I read this, what struck me is this. When you marvel at the gift God has given Eli's house, that they had God reveal himself to them, that they were chosen, that they were given everything they needed, it should lead us to marvel at what God has given us and how much more even than Eli. You see, there's threefold parts of this gift, the revelation, the choice and the gift. We have been given those things. God can say through his word to us this morning, 
I have revealed myself to you. If he revealed himself clearly to Eli's house in Egypt, how much more clearly has he revealed himself to us? As we read in Hebrews 1, in the past God spoke in many and various ways through his prophets. But now, in these last days, he has spoken clearly and wonderfully through his son. God says, I have revealed myself to you. And as we saw before, God's revelation is not just about information, it's the revelation of his will, his plan of rescue. How much more has that plan of salvation been shown to us? You know, 1 Peter 2, when it speaks of what, what we are in on as Christians, the plan of salvation that we have been shown in Christ, it ends with this wonderful line, even angels long to look in on what you know. God says to you this morning, I have revealed myself to you. And he can also say, I chose you. If God graciously chose Israel to be his people, so too have we been chosen in Christ. But even more than that, and this is spectacular, the rare and precious privilege that was bestowed on Eli's house, the the privilege of priesthood, has also been given to us in Christ. Did you hear in the second reading, 1 Peter 2 verse 9, what God says of the gift that he has given us? But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You and I, because of Christ, are a royal priesthood with every right to come right up to the throne of God as we do when we pray, with every ability to offer a life of worship that pleases him. You have been chosen. And finally God can say to us, I have given you everything you need. Not the abundant provision of endless sacrifices, endless offerings that he gave Eli's house. No, something far better than that. None other than the offering the once-for-all offering of the precious body and blood of our Lord Jesus. That's why we celebrate communion as we do this morning because we know that God has given us everything we need. How kind is our God? That's his way with his people. He reveals, he chooses, he gives. That's what's fallen at the feet of Eli and his sons, incomparable kindness. Which all leads on to the question God asked Eli in 1 Samuel 2.29. Why? Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honour your sons more than me? Why? It's the question someone betrayed us, isn't it? After all I've done, why this? God's betrayed heart wants answers. He wants to know two things of Eli's house. The first one we see in verse 29, he wants to know why the house of Eli has scorned, literally kicked at the sacrifices, the offerings that God has provided for them. You see, Eli's house, not satisfied with God's gift to them, with the privileged position that they were in, with God's ample provision, They'd fatten themselves with the very part of the offering intended to be given up for God. Greed had taken the place that was meant for God's honour. 
Have a look at the horrific way that worship at the tent, at the temple, is described in verses 12 to 17. You know, the priests were already apportioned the absolute best parts of any animal that was sacrificed. The, the, the breast and the right leg, Leviticus 7 tells us. But they weren't happy with just this. They sent their, their servant, their lad, their lackey for more. Off he went with his pitchfork, digging it into any pot he could find, grabbing out the meat and often taking it before the fat was burned, fat burnt to show honour for God. And even at points when a poor Israelite came up to the tent to offer a sacrifice for their sins, they'd push him out of the way, they'd grab the meat and charge off. Why? says God. Imagine trying to worship there. And it gets worse. Have a look at verse 22. Not only had they done this, they turned the entrance of this tent into a brothel and everyone knew. Verse 12 tells us that Eli's sons were literally the sons of Belial, worthless in their role. They didn't even know God. What a tragic statement about the spiritual leaders of Israel. Why, says God. And the second thing he wants to know in verse 29 concerns Eli directly. Why have you done nothing about this? Why do you honour your sons more than me? Eli in verse 22 to 25 had done nothing more than a feeble rebuke of his sons. He told them it wasn't good but he hadn't done anything about it. The old man Eli is capable of nothing more. I was trying to uh, picture that in, in my mind, this feeble response by Eli and I was remembering a couple of months back uh, lying in bed and uh, Finn, our son, came into our room at, a, at an hour that no human being should be awake and he sort of clambered up onto the bed and uh, sort of sat happily between us uh, and I'm, I'm trying desperately to stay asleep. I've got one eye half open looking at what he's doing and I notice his eyes has seen a glass of water up on the bed head, a full glass of water and uh, he's sort of looking at it and he's thinking and I know what's going to happen. And all I can muster is a sort of a half-hearted, half-asleep, please don't do that, Finn, please. And it happened. Down came the glass, water everywhere. That's the picture I have of Eli here. Please don't do that. I suspect he just wanted it all to go away. But being like this is a huge problem. By doing so, he had ended up honouring his own house, his sons, more than God. His sons should have been expelled from their role long ago. Such are the stakes. Israel's access to their God, their means of holiness, their only way of right standing before their God, of being this holy nation that they were meant to be, was being stopped by these sons. Eli ended up tolerating their contempt, preferring his boys to his God. Blood was thicker than faithfulness. Why, says God, let me encourage you to feel the weight of this moment. The consequences of this moment will be huge for the house of Eli and for the, all the people of God. It's a tragic scene. Profound grace is met with abject contempt and dishonour. And what are we meant to make of a moment like this? Well, I think there's much that we should make of it, but let me pick out three things that I think we should see as we look in on this scene. Firstly, I think we need to see the warning that is here for us to heed. 
We can look on appalled at the response of Eli's house to God's gift. But as we do, we need to remember that an even greater gift has come to us. And in remembering God's grace to us, heed the warning of verse 29 and realise that we too can respond this same way. You know, God's grace is meant to lead to faithfulness and godliness amongst his priests, amongst us as a royal priesthood. As Titus 2 puts it, it says, the grace of God that brings salvation to all men teaches us to say no to ungodliness, to live upright and godly lives in this age. That's the call on us. God's grace says stop sinning. Live upright lives before me, says God. But you and I know that we sin. We sin every day. That's why we prayed a prayer of confession before and we do that knowing we have a God who loves to forgive. But here in 1 Samuel 2.29, the warning we are to heed is against deliberate, unrepentant sin. To be someone who knows God's grace, who knows the difference Christ's death has made, to be forgiven, to know this grace is meant to lead to godliness, to know all of this and still sin deliberately with no plan to stop whether it be a uh, festering relationship that we have no plans to reconcile or some form of immorality or or greed or lies. It might be that we we feel powerless to stop doing it or, or we have no plans to. Whatever it is, God says it's not okay. To think such sin is okay, undealt with, is in the end to mock the sacrifice of Jesus, to kick at the cross like Eli's sons at the temple. God says that's not okay. As Hebrews 10 puts it, if we deliberately keep sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left. To live this way is to trample the Son of God underfoot. It's a vivid image, isn't it? To think of a sin that we might have been trapped in or are trapped in right now, this minute. Thinking we're either powerless to stop it or it can't see the big issue. God says you are trampling Jesus underfoot. goes on in Hebrews 10 to say that you are treating the very blood of Jesus shed for you as nothing. It's big, isn't it? Our God loves to forgive. It is his way. His grace is high and wide and long and deep to forgive even our darkest moments but he will not forgive the one who kicks and mocks his grace, who looks at the cross and by their actions shows contempt for the price that was paid there. That's the first thing we need to heed the warning. The second thing I want us to see is in verse 18 to 21 there is a wonderful example I think here to inspire us as God's people. Amongst the the bleak picture of this this moment, the corruption and the downward spiral of the house of Eli comes a flicker of hope. I love Old Testament narrative. It's masterfully written. Threaded all the way through this scene, this dark picture of five separate hints that while everything is heading in one direction, the wrong direction, God is at work turning things around as he always does. Have a look at little Samuel. 2 verse 11, the boy ministered before the Lord. 2.18, the same thing, 2.21, 2.26 and 3 verse 1. 
Samuel is charging ahead. Zoom in on chapter 2, verse 21. This is the one that struck me this week. We're told of Samuel. Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord, or more literally, Samuel grew up with the Lord. As I read that this week, what struck me is is that when you strip down the Christian life, you, you simplify it to its foundations. This is it, isn't it? This is our goal, to be those who grow up in the Lord. It's a funny concept for an adult. We, we feel that we've grown up, we're, we've matured, we've, we're adults now, but the Bible pushes us. It says, no, your goal for the duration of your life is to be someone who grows up in the Lord, who progresses in the Lord. And it's our goal for each other, isn't it? As Hebrew, uh, Ephesians 4 tells us, our goal is to present each other mature in Christ. It's why we meet like this. It's why we meet in small groups. It's why we pray together, why we sing. We want to grow up in the Lord, not apart from him. And growth like that is, is slow, isn't it? It's subtle and quiet often. But week after week, that's what's happening. And that's our goal, to be a church family who are passionate about growing up in the Lord. Think about all the goals you could have for the rest of your life, all the things that you would want to achieve. Well, none is better than this. Growing up with God, that's the main game of life. And so be inspired by Samuel. And while you're at it, I want, want you to see something else about this little moment that we see with Samuel in this story. Verses 19 to 21. I think what we see here is an example of a wonderful insight as to how we could achieve this goal in our own homes, our own households. So for those of us with kids or grandchildren or, or nieces or nephews or those of us who are godparents, have a look at Hannah and Elkanah, Samuel's parents. And back in uh, chapter 1, Hannah praying for a son says before Samuel is even a twinkle in Elkanah's eyes, she says, if you give me a son, I will dedicate him to you. Every day of his life he will serve you. She's desperate for a child. God gives her a child and she follows up on her promise. As soon as he is weaned, he is serving at the tent. And in verses 19 to 21, we see these parents come to visit their son every year, once a year, with great love and I suspect with great joy as they see their son grow up in the Lord. They see his progress. They rejoice at his progress. It's a great picture, isn't it? Think of all the things our children could grow up with. Wealth, security, perfect home, academic excellence, music lessons, sporting opportunities, you name it. All good things. But our goal as Christian parents, if we plan to honour God more than our own house, is verse 21. And I think the way you test this is you, is you think about your, if you have children or, or you think about your grandchildren, you think about the sort of things that fill your mind when you're thinking about them, the plans that you have for them, the decisions you're making. How much of it is shaped around this goal? That our children grow up with the Lord. I think what we see here in verses 19 to 21 is that the Lord gives us children so that our house may honour him. Do you believe that? The final thing I want us to see is that behind all of this, the good and the bad of this picture, is a God who prevails. 
As Hannah's prayer taught us last week, it is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose God will be shattered, Hannah said. And 1 Samuel 2 shows us that God will not be ignored by the house of Eli or anyone else. In verses 30 to 34, he outlines his judgment that will fall on Eli's house. It will be total and forever. But the amazing thing about this word of judgment is that by this same word, he is also guarding the feet of his saints, as Hannah told us he would. This word of judgment is a word of rescue, a merciful word. Think about what good news it would be for the Israelite worshipper who tries to come up to this tent to offer his sacrifice and gets smashed out of the way. God knows and he is strong to rescue. God will pull the house of Eli out of its foundations and as he promises in verse 35, he will raise up in their place a faithful priest, one who will walk before God's chosen king forever. In time, Samuel will fulfil that role as he serves before the first two kings of Israel and it is further fulfilled in Zadok and his line as all of the lines, all of the priests in that line serve all the kings in David's line. God fulfils his promise. But then most wonderfully, it is fulfilled in our Lord Jesus who Hebrews 2 tells us is a merciful and faithful high priest who makes atonement for the sins of the people. But he won't walk before the king as these other priests do. He is the king. To look on the moments captured in 1 Samuel 2 is to see, I think, a wonderfully stubborn God. He will not be ignored. His purposes will not be thwarted. He will prevail. He will shatter those who oppose him. He will guard his people and he will build his house. And as Hannah told us in chapter 2 verse 2, there is no rock like our God. And on this rock, our rock, Jesus Christ, he will build his house, his church, and even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's pray.